Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. Today, I am joined by S.E. Porter. S.E. Porter is the author of several novels, including Vasa in the Night as Sarah Porter and Projections. A solo show of her mixed media art was recently on view at Brooklyn's Delight Factory. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, daughter, and two cats. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Trevor. Great to be here. I'm so excited to have <laughs> you. I want to know a little bit more about this mixed media art that you recently displayed, because I did not know that you were also a, a traditional media artist. Um. Well, it was very exciting because it was my first solo show, and... So it was a big thrill for me. And I had only started developing this work in the last couple of years. Um, but yeah, you can see it all online if you're interested at the Delight Factory's website. Um, it's pretty easy to find. The show was called Seance by Sarah Porter. So if anyone wants to look that up, it's all the works from the show are on the website. Um, it was really fun. I I was a VJ. I did a live improvisational video collage basically moving collages for many years in clubs and at burning man and you know new york warehouse parties kind of thing so this was an extension of that i think once i had my daughter i wasn't you know doing 4 a.m burning man parties anymore but <laughs> i still wanted a, a visual art outlet so this was kind of a way of doing the same thing in a completely analog form and um, the kind of many, many layers of imagery compounding together, except I was doing it on paper instead of in video. Uh, so it was, it was very exciting to have this show, which is why I mentioned it in the bio, because I was really delighted. This is such a fascinating discovery for me, um, because, you know, I only know of you as a writer. And um, so you're, you're kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Uh, what what has drawn you to, you know, kind of the visual arts? How did you get started there? Oh, I mean, I think before I decided to be a writer, I thought I would be a visual artist. Like in my teens, I certainly assumed I was going to be a visual artist as a as an adult. So it's kind of, it's where my roots are, maybe. And I think, you know, I think it does play into my writing. I think my writing tends to be very visual and very cinematic. And I think it's all coming from the same source. But it's nice because when I'm writing, there's a lot of pressure because my work has to, you know, it's how I make a living. So it has to be polished. It has to be professional. And mm. the visual arts lets me be a complete chaos monkey and I can it can fail. It can be a disaster. I can throw it out. I can just not care if it's a disaster. And so that is such a liberating outlet. I can just play and wreak havoc. And if it works, it's great. If it doesn't. I don't have to worry about it. So, um, so it's very freeing. And I think it's, it helps keep me emotionally balanced in a way because, mm. you know, because the writing has become higher stakes and it's mm. nice to have something that's not high stakes. It, it, it's so interesting. I, I, I love art. I've always been, you know, just very compelled by art, even as a mm -hmm. kid. And it doesn't necessarily matter to me what kind of art um if there's if there's a lot of passion behind it if there's someone trying to communicate an idea through their art growing up i went to all kinds of different fascinating buildings for architecture i was taken to mu museums where i would look at paintings i would look at drawings i would look at you know just all of that kind of art. I love performing arts um even as mm -hmm. a kid i was obsessed with opera <laughs> And 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 the marriage of of music and performance and that of course tied into a fascination with television, with animation, with film, but also at the core of it, just like literature, I think has all also always been my preferred, I think, medium for uh, expression. I love comic books. I love you know anything that kind of com combines narrative with with illustration. So it's really interesting to meet you, you know, with um, this kind of multifaceted artistic identity. Um, and I, I think your 
maybe passion for visual art does come out in your work because it is very, um, I think, grounded in in kind of a visual sense. What are some of the things that, you know, for you, you you draw from this visual arts world into your um, writing art, your your literature? I mean, I think when I'm writing, I really see it. And so it doesn't feel that different to me. It's like when I'm writing, I'm, I I experience it as reportage. And I know that sounds goofy, mm. but I know a lot of people speak in terms of, you know, very consciously constructing their characters, con- consciously constructing their plots. And I just truly don't experience writing a book that way. I experience mm. it as seeing it and telling what I see and just trying to be accurate. And if the story goes wrong or if I get stuck, it's usually because I'm trying to force it and I'm trying to construct something. Mm. And and then it's like, no, I have to cut that and I have to go back and I have to actually see what happens and tell the truth about it. So, you know, so that is how I experience writing a book. I experience it as kind of going to this world and just... Mm. Um, reporting back on what I've what I've seen there, which I know can could I don't know I don't know how it sounds. It might sound goofy, <laughs> but it's um, I'm just trying to be honest about what the experience is for me. Oh yeah, I, see I love this too because I'm a very visual reader. Um, mm-hmm. I I I go through a process of actively constructing you know kind of like the 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 film or of the mind you know um to to visualize a a sense of space a sense of character a sense of you know interaction and i feel like projections does that incredibly well from both a structural standpoint um but but also from you know just the dynamic of of storytelling i the this book is kind of broken up into little sections that almost act like vignettes like if you if you took a big film reel and just kind of like chopped certain sections up and and put it together and it felt really natural to me anyway as a reader that the story would be told in the way that it is and i i see that visual element kind of playing into the scene making that you do as you construct the story Mm. It's interesting because you're actually picking up on how this story was written, um, <laughs> which is that the the original story was the Angus story and mm-hmm. Catherine wasn't even a narrator and it was in 90,000 words. Now it's been cut. The his strand of the story has been cut to about 40 or wow. 40,000 yeah. words. So yeah, cut something like 50,000 words out of that. And then the other two strands were also written basically as separate narratives and then the whole thing was stitched together so um so yeah you're picking up on the the sort of and my editor actually used the word vignettes yes. <laughs> as, yeah. um that you just used so yes it was it was uh sutured together frankenstein together out of these Which two is- different multiple stories that's it's such a fascinating a uh, creative process and i i want to dig into you know some of the challenges there maybe for you mm-hmm. um but but also some of the celebrations of of kind of putting a story together this way um because i think that at least my initial reaction was like for three chapters maybe i was a little disoriented and then it clicked and all of a sudden i was like i understand the language of this book now i know what it's doing and and that propelled me forward through it i just couldn't put it down because i was like i gotta get to the next part i gotta get to the you know the 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 way that the story reveals itself you know through its structure but before we dig in there i think this is a great time maybe to hear from you what is projections what is the the story of the novel well, it's it's three separate narrative strands that are braided, interwoven, what what have you, alternating, which, as you pointed out, gives you some built-in suspense because whenever you mm. switch to a narrative, you're wondering what happened in the last narrative. So that's a technique I like in other people's books too, where you suspend as you go to a different voice and then you catch up to that story again later. Mm. Um, but the story is that Catherine, our protagonist, has been murdered by her 
ex-best friend stalker at the age of 19. Her ghost then is stuck to him and he is a sorcerer and he flees the murder scene to the city of sorcerers Nautilus and unwittingly drags her ghost with him where she winds up stuck to his back screaming perpetually unable to speak because she can't stop screaming caught in her dying scream and wondering how to get out of this predicament this flailing screaming thing but she's still fully sentient she still has her consciousness and it's a lot of it is her trying to figure out what she can do with this extreme limitation and meanwhile everyone treats her as an object because she can't tell them otherwise she can't speak for herself so she she has this kind of sly awareness and this commentary on what she's witnessing but she has trouble figuring out how to act on the situation and then that is interwoven with the story of angus who we i don't want to spoil too much but he is (laughs) been made by the sorcerer Gus Farrow, who has murdered Catherine, but he doesn't know that. As far as he's concerned, he's a blushing innocent, a sweet, naive (laughs) boy, just looking for true love in the big city, but that's not what he is, and he does eventually find that out. So it's those stories, you know, coming into collision with each other. And then it's also flashbacks to Catherine's life as a you know, child and teenager in um, Western New York in the 1850s. So those are the the three narratives that are fitting together. It, it's such a, uh, I just have <laughs> to gush. I'm just, I do this every time. I, I get swept away in how much I love these stories. Um, and I just have to gush. It's so good. <laughs> the way that these three stories, um, you know, kind of, combined together not just from the the story of the you know the plot of the book but also thematically how they compound on issues that that you identify thematically throughout the book so let's start with the origin of the story as angus's story um Mm -hmm. because i think that's really interesting the text is all about catherine and what catherine goes through and angus is is kind of there as like sort of the consequence of what happens to to Catherine. Mm-hmm. But it it originated from that perspective. And I want to hear a little bit more about that origin story for you and and how then you had to kind of chop back that story to really highlight Catherine's story. Well, I tell this story in the acknowledgments because there's a lot to acknowledge with this one. But at the time my editor was Susan Chang at Tor. And I wrote this originally as a 90,000-word YA, YA fantasy, fulfilling a a contract with Tor for a two-book deal. And I began it with my daughter's a tiny baby on my lap, and I was writing with her. And I thought I was, so I thought, you know, I had a little baby. I was like, I'm going to do like a fairly unambitious, one voice, like one first person, YA novel, get her done. Right. I thought, (laughs) naively to myself. (laughs) And so... You know, I mean, he was always an exploration of toxic masculinity, but that toxic masculinity that cloaks itself as aren't I cute, aren't I sweet and innocent, aren't I a true romantic, when really it's absolutely venomous and murderous. Um, And so he, he kind of began as an embodiment of that. And there were some scenes where he meets the sorcerer who made him, Gus Farrow, and there are, you know, references to Catherine and she showed up a in a few scenes but she was she was there but she wasn't that developed and I handed this book in to my editor and I waited for my notes and I waited I waited and I waited for my notes and a year later she came back and said you know who I want is Catherine I want Catherine give me Catherine and by the way, could you make an entire second narrator and an entire second timeline oh and by the way make it adult and I was like what you know I never heard of this like never in knowing quite a lot of authors and I've never heard of a book being bumped from the Y to the adult side like once maybe it's happened but I had never heard of such a thing and then she was also talking about clearly like at least a year of work so it was like okay 
like, but I'd always wanted to publish my adult fiction. So it's like, okay, here's also this opportunity. And then I thought about, I was like, you know, this is actually a, a really good idea. Like it actually <laughs> is a really good idea. Um, so after the shock kind of wore off, which took a couple of weeks, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so it was then sort of how to describe it. When I when I'm looking for a voice, it's like mm. trying to strike a vein, and you find the vein and you follow it. And um, so then it was like hitting Catherine's voice because I'd already had Angus's voice had been very clear to me. Right. And then yeah, it was like finding her voice and trying to sort of feel for it and feel where it would go. But she came pretty quickly, and so then it became telling her story. And I, mm. you know, then handed him this lumbering via moth of a book it was like 190,000 words or something it was just <laughs> and Susan said this is great can you cut 50,000 words <laughs> but also add 20,000 more words of the historical sections of when mm. Catherine's young and I was like so really cut 70,000 words <laughs> well you know and I was like okay I can do this and then she quit for very for very valid reasons but it was a shock. So that's how this came into being. And this book has been through three editors, four release dates. It's, you know, years mm. of going back and forth and years of different iterations. But here it is. Yeah. It's out. So, oh my gosh. And, it, and it's incredible. <laughs> so, you, you talk about finding Catherine's voice. And I mm -hmm. want to know, you know, where did Catherine's voice come from? Because I think that this book, if if anything struck me the loudest, it is Catherine's primal scream through mm -hmm. the entire book. Her voice is so distinctive. And and the, the I think that it's a very powerful voice. So I, I want to know, you know, how did that come about? Where did you find it? Ah, this is one of those kind of unanswerable questions um mm. i can tell you that writing writing different first person voices is my favorite thing to do as a writer i just love it i love that feeling where you find like a single sentence and you feel the whole character implied mm -hmm. by that sentence and then you just catch it and you follow it and um so once i hear the character i can just keep following it and the, and the character is to me implicit in the voice um mm -hmm. so but where it comes from like i don't know the, the great <laughs> i mean that's the totally... great beyond um yeah, yeah it, it came from totally fair. so yeah but i did get the sense of her and sort of feel like i was hearing her as i felt like i was hearing angus and probably in those you know those opening lines i was mm. like okay here she is and then i could just keep going it felt to me as if Catherine stepped directly out of a 19th century novel um, and spoke with a fluency, I think, mm -hmm. with the the issues of her time, but also the, the language, the linguistic structure of her time. Because I think there is a, forgive me, I think there's a texture to the language of a novel that was written in the 19th century. And, and that texture is so hard to translate to a 20th or 21st century reader because our vernacular is just not structured the same way. It's not, not we don't, we don't speak in that same voice in fiction. And so to, to pick up a book that felt to me like it was speaking with a 21st century understanding of feminism in a 19th century voice, like it was a creative lightning bolt, you know, like I was just struck immediately by it. Did you have to do like a lot of research in constructing that language? I've read a lot of 19th century fiction and I actually have a an unpublished book with a, an 1816 narrator. So oh. um, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in in the 19th century. But I did do a lot of historical research for this book, for sure, because there are, you know, all these sections mm. in Western New York in 
the middle of the 19th century, which turns out to have been an amazing time and place. And <laughs> Uh, completely, completely fascinating things were going on. So, mm. you know, people talk about the Victorians with a lot of um, untrue assumptions. And mm. really, they were, it was a ferment of, you know, social justice movements. And the, like the, the spiritualists, I have an, actually an essay coming out on Friday about this, but like the spiritualists were affirming trans identities in 1857 or something like wow. there there yeah it's they they there was all this stuff going on it was you know the abolitionists and the spiritualists and the universalists overturning these calvinist doctrines that said babies were damned to hell and you know mm -hmm. it was this absolutely volatile time where um so many things were being thrown up in the air and western new york where catherine is was like the epicenter uh, you know, it's where spiritualism started. It's where mm. it was. It was where the first women's rights conferences were. It was like the absolute epicenter of all these movements that were mm. all going on at the same time. So once I started researching, I was like, wow, like I kind of stumbled into it. But then mm. I started discovering what an incredible time and place I'd stumbled into. And especially the history of spiritualism is just jaw dropping. It's really incredible. So I put some of that into the book because I think the spiritualists are treated pretty unfairly in pop culture mm. and the collective imagination and collective memory. So I wanted to give them a little bit like the scene with Nora Downs, the, the trance speaker was very deliberate because I've never seen the trance speakers in a work of fiction or a movie. It's always, yeah. you know, the con artist medium and faking phenomena to seance, but that's not all the spiritualists were. And there were these trans speakers who traveled the country basically like preaching human rights in a in mm -hmm. very 19th century terms, but very 21st century ideas, um, in a way that is pretty startling. Like they were actually intersectional in a way that I don't think I had never given the Victorians credit for being intersectional. They were they were really intersectional and they were really speaking about you know the individual conscience being mm. everything and so you know to them it was blasphemous for instance slavery wasn't just wrong it was blasphemous because no human being had the right to tell another human being what to do because mm. every human being was a direct expression of the divine so for anyone to boss anyone else around or assume any kind of authority or primacy was actually an assault on god so they had this, you know, amazing worldview that I feel has been kind of erased from our, our collective memory, but really a lot of the roots of what people are still trying to do now in fighting for justice mm -hmm. are there. And I feel like it's a shame that's been lost. So I wanted to give that a little bit of a shout out. I, I'm so glad that you bring all of this up because, you know, to be totally honest, I had not known and i still don't know very much mm -hmm. about um the spiritualists and i i i kind of do want to ask you just a little bit to help describe this movement um to my okay. listeners who may not be as aware of um course. you know but but i certainly did not know as much of what you're talking about i i know a lot more about suffrage and and some of that movement mm -hmm. um through a lot of my grad studies i was very much interested in modernist literature uh, when I was mm -hmm. doing a lot of my PhD coursework and a lot of the research that I did for my dissertation was uh, specifically about Wonder Woman and the okay. the, the symbolism of, of Wonder Woman as specifically a, a suffrage character. Mm -hmm. So I, I know more about that component and the, the trance speaker that you're talking about shows up. There's a very specific vignette in the book where Catherine visits one of these speakers as she kind of delivers this lecture, which was absolutely fascinating. I heard accounts of that in a lot of my research, but this is still very new to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about like who the spiritualists were and, and again, revisit that idea that you're talking about of kind of the way that this movement of women finding their voices 
And sometimes having to find their voices by pretending to be other voices. Pretending to be other people. Yeah. Yes. Fits into, you know, this modern politic, this modern um, uh, discourse specifically about uh, women not being able to address, you know, even their own rights, the rights that are being taken from them or never granted to them, you know, kind of in the first place. I mean, okay, the spiritualists were a, for a while, a major American religion. Like, really, there was the movement was absolutely huge. It begins, I believe, in 1848 with two sisters, the Fox sisters, uh, Katie and Margaret, who claim as young teenage girls, maybe they're 13 and 17, 12 and 16, something like that. They claim that a murdered peddler has been buried in their house and that his ghost is communicating with them via raps on the wall. And a lot of people hear this and a lot of people get freaked out, hear this rapping. Um, now, the Fox sisters are complicated characters because they later, 40 years later, said the whole thing had been fraudulent. A year after that, they recanted that and said, no, we were just, you know, under pressure. Mm. So the stories around them are bizarre, especially Katie Fox. And there's a very interesting uh, biography called Talking to the Dead by Barbara Weisberg. And she, Barbara Weisberg, having researched everything she could, was still not sure if Katie Fox was actually psychic and was actually if psychic phenomenon were actually happening around uh, Katie Fox in particular. The stories are very, very strange. Also complicating things is that years later, they found a skeleton the exact right age to belong to that murdered peddler oh, wow. in the basement of that farmhouse. So, you know, it's it's very inconclusive. <laughs> but anyway, these two sisters say this and people start coming to their house. Everyone's hearing these strange sounds, their strange events and kind of poltergeist stuff. And um, soon this becomes a movement where people are looking for ways to communicate with the dead. So what we know now, when we think of spiritualism, we think of the seance and we think of these mediums trying to, you know, initiate communication with the dead. And usually they're fraudulent is usually the image that we have, you know, it's mm -hmm. usually covering your hand in phosphorescent and paint. So there's a spirit hand floating around <laughs> the room and stuff. And a lot of that did go on. So it's hard to write and talk about the spiritualists and be fair because there was tremendous fraud you know and i don't mm. want to deny that because there was a lot of bad stuff went down and mm. they did rip there were con artist mediums who ripped people off there were a lot of con artist mediums but there was also a side of the movement that has been basically forgotten which was a major social justice movement and the trans speakers were at the forefront of that and these were some of them were like literally children, like girls mm -hmm. as young as 12, gen then maybe through their 20s. They were often uneducated, working class kids who traveled the country at a time when there was an absolute prohibition on women speaking in public. Mm. And they would get up on stage, be given the subject of their talks when they arrived at the hall. And according to witnesses, speak with the eloquence of angels, mm. generally on subjects you know, of human rights. So they were speaking against slavery. They were speaking for women's rights. They were more radically feminist than the suffragists. Like they were actually mm -hmm. demanding the right to voluntary motherhood, which I think is still relevant today. They were, you know, they were making demands for genuine human equality in a way that was completely unprecedented. And people actually listened to them because, you know, no one would have listened to 12, 13, 18 year old girls but because they said, well, the spirits are speaking through us, they use that borrowed authority to get people to listen. And, you know, they packed halls across the country. They were a phenomenon. Some of them were quite famous, were celebrities of their era. A Cora Hatch, who Nora Downs in the book is somewhat based on, was a, was a major celebrity of her time. So they were really doing amazing things. And, you know, a lot of abolitionists were spiritualists. There's a lot of overlap between the movements. There's, it's really a fascinating history. So I tried to, to where the uh, spiritualists are portrayed in the book, I tried to do them some justice by including both that side with the trance speaker who comes and speaks up for 
human rights, but then there's also a seance where things go horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> so I was trying to be fair, but the, you know, the character of the the minister who, who becomes Catherine's mentor, he's, he is based on real spiritualist. There was a lot of overlap between the universalists and the spiritualists in that they were both saying, unlike Calvinism, which had said that most humans are just damned, that, you know, the doctrine of mm. predestination, which said that most people are damned from birth, including right. babies and small children, at a time when half of all small children die, they were <laughs> telling everyone that these babies were damned to hell and these little mm. kids were damned to hell. And the spiritualists and the universalists came in and said, no, you know, the kids are fine. And they're, they're right, they're with you, they're watching you. And so even that, where people have, you know, said the spiritualists were fraudulent because they impersonated these dead children, which they did. But it's also revolutionary in that they told people that their kids were not damned to hell. Mm. Um, and really revalued, you know, the work of having children and said it wasn't just a waste. So mm. I feel like that was actually quite profound, um, mm. a, a profound aspect of the movement that was really important. So yeah, the spiritualists anyway were a major American religion that went into decline in the early 20th century, basically mm. because of increasing, increasing fraud. Mm. Uh, a lot mm. of mediums were exposed. Uh, you know, there was huge demand for seances after World War One because everyone was trying mm. to get in touch mm. with dead soldiers and. A lot of mediums cheated and there was eventually just so much fraud that it became untenable and mm. the movement kind of collapsed, although it does, there's, you know, a remnant of it today, but um, yeah, so that's, that's the spiritualist aspect of the book, but that was definitely some of the most interesting stuff I uncovered in research. It was just, it, that blew my mind. I had no idea of. It, it's so fascinating to me that, that you include so much of the spiritualists and, and specifically this kind of rhetorical tactic, this rhetorical technique of, you know, addressing problems, but having to address those problems almost as, as though, you know, from some kind of a distance, because it seems like the only way that we can address those problems. I, I think about our current political moment and mm -hmm. the way that our country specifically continues to treat women and and to to think about women and treat women's rights. Mm -hmm. And I think about, you know, the way in which it seems like our art is having to do so much more of the heavy lifting <laughs> in addressing these issues, because no one will listen to a woman who just comes out and says the thing that she needs to say. There are too many people who are loud on the internet or where have you that that want to quiet that discourse. And and yet we still have these big kind of tentpole artistic statements that that come out and you know, like Barbie had this moment um mm -hmm. of of like prof not even necessarily deeply profound feminism, just just straight feminism, right? And and it seemed like you know, this is this the only way that we can have this conversation anymore? You know, do we have to wrap it up in our art and and present it to people with with Ryan Gosling in the mix in order for us <laughs> to listen? You know, so in a way, you're saying we're still doing what the trans speakers were doing. We're <laughs> you borrowing these spirits and speaking through them to get anyone to hear us. And I think you raise a compelling point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I it it's. God, I love this book. I love you for writing this book so much. <laughs> I mean, this book does talk about a lot of stuff that that I think pertains to modern feminism and and specifically, you know, kind of converses with some of the lingering problems that that we continue to see, especially toxic masculinity. That is such a focus of Angus's story and and a focus of of you know, kind of what happens with Catherine. And I wanted yeah. to open the door to hear from you, you know, kind of directly and artistically, you know, what is toxic masculinity for you? And, and, and how did you want to address it through this book? I mean, to define toxic masculinity, it really doesn't deal with all of toxic masculinity, but it does deal with, it's really, um, any masculinity that has to define itself by dehumanizing other people. Mm. 
mm-hmm. um, any any masculinity that has to like limit what it, it could even see of other humans just to protect its own boundaries you know if you have to if you can only sustain your worldview by pretending other people aren't real your worldview could mm-hmm. use some work and so <laughs> yeah <laughs> but this is particularly dealing with the kind of pseudo-romantic strand of toxic masculinity which i think yes. is i have had some run-ins with myself in my life and where it masks itself is like this is just adorable romanticism isn't this just so cute i'm so cute and i'm so pure-hearted and so it's okay for me to dehumanize you and ignore your boundaries and murder mm. you because aren't i romantic it's it's mm. true love and it's like well no it's not and Catherine herself says it is you know, she says Gus never loved me. Like he's yeah. he killed me, but like if he had loved me, he would have let me go. Yeah. And um, and he actually proves he can't love her because he can't see her as real enough to love her, even though he's obsessed with her, and he murders her. But the difference between that and love is crucial. <laughs> so it's he, he can't, yeah, he can't accept her as a, a real human being. And when she's like, you know, so he keeps bullying her to get involved in magic when they're still young and they're still friends before he kills her. He's always, always on her butt to, you know, be interested in what he's interested. In. And she's like, no, that's not what I want. And he can't understand that. Mm. And he can't even hear it. You know, he can't accept that she has other ideas other interests uh you know a whole other self mm. that doesn't revolve around what he wants it to revolve around and he you know and that's really why he you know why she can't love him too and mm-hmm. he loses her you know to his own inability to like let her be a whole separate person mm. so the projections in the title are both you know it's angus who is a projection of gus set out to yeah wreak havoc but it's also this vision he has of Catherine that he can't let go of um mm. and he can't just let her be a person and so yeah so that's his where the toxic masculinity is coming in it's that refusal to just hear someone when they speak and you know it doesn't even matter if she can talk to him or not because anything she says he either won't hear it or he'll distort it so yeah you so she's just left with the screen yeah you hit on gosh so many so so many important components here i think in the way that the patriarchy you know kind of views romance um you know how how men are taught to think about romance i mm-hmm. as i was reading this book i continue to come back to a, a lot of the problems that i see with online discourse about about dating about you know men trying to impress or pick up women and it's like the conversation is always about women as as kind of property women as a a commodity or or as an accessory um Mm -hmm. no real accounting for a woman as a, a living breathing person with as rich an interior life as any of these men you know imagine themselves as having uh a startling change i think generationally that i've seen i work with a lot of young men in in a a university setting but i i see a lot of their romantic you know ideals i see a lot of the way that they think about their relationships with with women and i hear i overhear a lot of the same rhetoric coming from mouthpieces like andrew tate an absolutely toxic Mm -hmm. human being that continues to reiterate this idea that that women are not necessarily participants in a relationship it it's more like men are are or and especially young men are being taught to see them as a fulfillment of their masculine identity a fulfillment mm. of their you know very maleness if you will and it's it's so built on a power imbalance you know it's so mm-hmm. built on this terrible ideation of of just totally dominating a woman who is supposed to completely respond to you and have no identity outside of that and i i feel mm-hmm. like this book 
is presenting that in a really dynamic way, speaking, you know, kind of with perhaps even a softer rhetoric, but it 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 it's rooted in that same idea, you know, that same identity that a man has to has to have a a partner, you know, has to have uh, a wife or a girlfriend or what have you in order to be considered a man. And there's no accounting for the woman in this conversation, even the way that some of these men today talk about women, they speak in terms that are constantly dehumanizing, constantly rewriting who they are for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you are in Catherine's position and you're being stalked, you reach a point where your only defense is silence because mm. anything you say will be ripped away, turned inside out, you know, will lose its meaning. And so you are actually rendered voiceless because voicelessness becomes your only defense. Mm. Um, and I have actually, I have been there. I had a stalker for over 30 years, which is where some of the rage in this book comes from. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you can't speak. You can never answer. You can never say anything because anything you say is fuel for the obsession. And mm. um, so you're, you're forced into this voicelessness and, you know, and it's, it's not a great place to be because of course you want to speak back mm. and you want to say what you have to say and you want to be able to get mad, but you can't because mm. yeah, you're cornered. So I think, you know, some of that anger was from direct personal experience <laughs> <laughs> i i totally see it i i again uh, one of the the greatest components i think of of this story is Catherine's kind of primal scream in death mm-hmm. that seems to be the only thing that that she's capable of doing and yet also something that everyone is desperate to just tune out you know yeah as omnipresent as that scream is throughout the book it is constantly treated and and deliberately misinterpreted to be about something else. And I right. think allegorically how utterly brilliant that is to, to relate to how I think we've treated women historically. Mm-hmm. And when she gets her voice back, she does it by writing. And I didn't even realize how much that was a reflection of myself until much later until the book was finished i was like oh yeah like you reclaim your voice by writing right right through through (laughs) the art right yeah the very thing that we've been talking about yeah but yeah she does i guess that's a bit of a spoiler sorry listeners um (laughs) but she does ultimately manage to to speak but only through the written word yeah if if there is one thing that I hope listeners pick up on through this conversation, it is that this is required reading in 2024 yeah. and beyond. I do not say that lightly. I mean it. This is required reading. It's so brilliant. I could just keep going about this for forever. I feel like this book is so complex, um, but I don't know what else to bring out that wouldn't just be an utter spoiler, just mm-hmm. totally ruin the experience. But I I do want to pose to you one last question thematically about the book, and it is about the the kind of system of magic that you've created. This is a dark fantasy, and I think that in the field of fantasy, there's always questions about magic. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, thinking about the the literal system of magic in this world, but also the, the allegorical voice that you lend, you know, to Catherine and to women, what were some of the things that were most important to you in this magic as it's displayed throughout the book? The magic of Nautilus. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the system in Nautilus is that magic is currency. So people are very, you know this, but everyone else doesn't. Um, (laughs) So most sorcerers are very specialized. It's not like anyone can just do anything. So you buy the magic you can't perform yourself um you you know so people have generate magic with their thoughts generate magic with their minds but whatever you don't know how to make yourself you can get someone else to do for you so i mean i think i think a lot of what i was expressing was anger at the kind of pseudo meritocracies of capitalism and like no no it's just a meritocracy you're just 
You're just making it yourself with your mind. But of course, it's not really a meritocracy. And of course, people find ways to game the system. And, you know, and of course, it's unjust. It still runs rampant. And also that the sorcerers of Nautilus like are so essentially frivolous um, that they're, you know, they have all this magic. And what do they do with it? Well, they do they do tricks. They do social jockeying. You know, they they claw for position they have little coups and even though that stuff was really fun like the like writing the coups were very i quite <laughs> like the coups. <laughs> but it was definitely like i was definitely expressing some anger at this you know this just i guess the way our society makes everything such a fixation on money um mm. and substituting in magic for that and yeah, and I mean, some of it is, you know, I, I mentioned to you before, before we started recording that I did video at Burning Man for years. I went to Burning Man for a lot, a lot of years. So for me, when I read magic societies and books, to me, they're always kind of read as Burning Man. <laughs> I always feel like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, here are the girls in their flowing velvet dresses, you know, doing their whatever. I was like, yeah, I've been there, been there, seen that. <laughs> there is an element of, an element the Nautilus is kind of a little bit of a Burning Man society too, and that Burning Man positions itself as a meritocracy. You know, you mm. you're valued for what you can make, but once again, you know, not really. There's a lot of you know the people with the big money bring in the big sound systems, mm. and they get people to build their stuff professionally instead of building it themselves. And you know, the meritocracy once again is subject to the same forces of capitalism that everything else in our lives is subject to, and it never gives us a break for a second. And so there's some of that. One of the things that struck me the most about Nautilus as a, a city and, and the way that magic works there is this idea of of this magical currency being able to shape anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can do anything with it. Uh, as long as you you kind of have the willpower and the skill to shape it. Um, and and there are these coups that overtake, they sweep through the city and and all of a sudden the, even the city archi architecture is reframed, you know, to to suit whoever it is that has the most magical power at that moment. Mm -hmm. And yet structurally, nothing changes. It's yeah. all just, you know, it's all, it's all just a facade. It's just a fresh paint of coat over the same kind of corrupt system. Historically, just kind of spiral, even like the Nautilus, just spiraling into itself. And, and for what purpose, right? It's, right. Not, it's not changing the shape of anything. It's just, you know, kind of compounding, driving into itself needlessly. And Catherine, as she witnesses all of this, is just you know, kind of infinitely rageful about the fact that you could do anything with this and, and you this still you choose to do nothing. Right. That is very much her critique of Nautilus society. Yes. And very much her feeling. And, you know, even the characters who are sympathetic, like Anura, are still involved in the corruption. Mm. Um, you know, the city is rampant with bribery and you know, and everyone is always working their angles. And so, so yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it is a critique of, of how those kinds of systems, like, you know, capitalism makes everyone is always makes everyone into a target of everyone else because everyone, and, and it's not even our fault. You know, we don't, we have mm. no alternative, but it's, it's not good for people. I think to live <laughs> that way. Yeah, so this thing where we're always, always targets of, you know, everyone has always has to try and sell you something because they're trying to survive and I get it. But mm. at the same time, like, could we just not <laughs> sometimes? <laughs> um, well, bless you for that angst. Um, because I, again, I, I come back to the question, constantly the question, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Mm -hmm. You know, how do, how do we do anything and and I feel like as we've we've kind of been circling around as we've been you know talking about this, I feel like art continues to to deliver to us messages and and through that imaginative space, imaginative space, I I, I continue to hope that maybe we can dream bigger, you know, and and inspire others to dream bigger. 
you know, mm-hmm. why settle for this when we could build anything we can? When we could be the sorcerers. Yes. We could build anything and look what we do with it. Yeah. All this power, all these possibilities. And what do we do? We Melt could... the ice caps. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Sarah, bless you so much for being on the show, for bringing your thoughts, for writing this incredible book. For those who are interested in finding out more about your art, your fiction, and all of your forthcoming projects, where can they find you? I have a website that desperately needs to be updated, but it does exist. (laughs) SarahPorterBooks.com. You can find me on the internet. I'm out there. My YA novels are the Lost Voices trilogy. There's Vasa in the Night, When I Cast Your Shadow, which is my personal favorite, but it absolutely tanked. And Never Contented Things. Um, There's also a middle grade called Tentacle and Wing. And then this is my adult debut, Projections, as Essie Porter. And Sarah Porter Books, I think, on Twitter book or books one of them there wasn't room for the s on instagram um well (laughs) thank you so much for your time today this has just been a delight for me i i genuinely appreciate you coming on the show oh it's my pleasure trevor it was great to meet you delightful to meet you in fact